Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. Hello, hello. It was my birthday yesterday. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I just, in that I second, we've, you know, we've been chatting before this, talking about birthdays of years past and of yesterday. And I just in that split second thought, oh no, should I say happy birthday? <laughs> That's all right. We were yes, just, yeah. Happy birthday, Michelle. Thank you. Um, I spent my day reading, so that was amazing. (laughs) Yes, and your first summer birthday for a while. So I don't know if anyone listening saw. I thought it was so funny that you were complaining about the hot weather and it was your first birthday in Australia in a couple of years. So I (laughs) dug up an old snow photo (laughs) on your Instagram to share. It was 37 degrees, which should be illegal especially in October oh when it's so early in spring. October that's really hot yeah oh and like it's very variable because the year I was born 1994 um it was like 42 my poor mum really? it was 42 yeah oh, no, but then, <laughs> I know but then some years it'll still be quite like under 30s or yeah. like low 30s around this time of year so it can be very like up and down it's always an odd time of year to have a birthday um yeah. so we just spent the whole day hot yet or not kind of thing it's really oh. this week that's like the variable isn't it it's so so bad like I just don't know how Jack and I are going to survive the next few months we might not have a podcast next year we might have just melted into little puddles <laughs> like oh well you didn't so, freeze to death either so I'm sure you'll be no, fine because I lived in a house with heating but like here I live in the house that's so hot yeah. like there's one side of my house that gets all the sun in the afternoon and it literally I walked into it yesterday and like it is like an oven oh yeah it's baking this like, was actually just like complete sidebar about how hot Rockhampton is that side of like my house when I was growing up mm-hmm. was where my bedroom was I you remember Michelle I had you, a very yeah, like long same way. Yeah. thin I had like a long thin bedroom like the room was like long and thin on the side of the house and it was all windows um and you know after I moved out was when they put the aircon in that room and my dad has actually just redone it so it's actually got walls now not just <laughs> all windows um my sister's currently in that room and I think my brother is about to move in but when I was there it was hotter than hell um and (laughs) so I literally could never go into my room unless it was winter or nighttime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is the thing, Jack's hot. never lived in this house before. So he keeps being like, oh my God, it's so hot. This house is so hot because we don't have any air conditioning in the living areas. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh my God, you are lucky. Like for most of my life living in this house, there was no air conditioning and there was no ceiling fans. And he was like, oh my God, what? And I was like, yeah, just had pedestal fans. Like, oh, I don't know how I coped. I can barely cope now. But basically this means that when it gets really hot like this, I today I'm in the off, I'm in my office, which is one of the rooms that has air conditioning. So yay! But unless I'm working, which obviously wasn't working yesterday, so we just spent the entire day from about 10 a.m. when it got really unbearable in 
our bedroom which has air conditioning luckily and we have actually set up a tv in there for this pure purpose of some days will be too hot to be in the lounge room yeah so we need to be in the bedroom and I just read all day which was lovely like what a way to spend my birthday I loved that it was so good um so shall I tell you about the book that I read because yes I I needed to finish it (laughs) (laughs) I was like I need a book to recommend um I was reading a book called The Murder Box by Olivia Kiernan that's how you pronounce her last name and it was a proof that I got sent from the lovely folks at Quercus um now I didn't actually realize because it just sounded really intriguing I didn't realize until after I'd read it that it's part of a series um so I guess that's kind of like a good indication of there are a couple of bits where I felt like maybe it had been a series but it's that sort of police procedural where you can pick up any book and you know, there's not too many. Yeah. 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 So basically this, um, is the detective Frankie gets a murder mystery box on her desk and because it's her birthday and she's like, Oh, this is like maybe, you know, my family or something. There's no, there's no card. She's like, Oh, do they not think I get enough murder at work? Like maybe they want me to do this stupid game and like, Oh, I don't know. And she like starts looking at it has a look at a couple of the clues. It's that sort of, I don't know if you've ever seen them before where you pull it out and it's got all the evidence and like the autopsy report and all this sort of yeah. stuff. Um, and she logs into the website and is like, oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, looks at a few things and then sort of forgets that they've been working on a really big case about um, like a local Irish celebrity sort of you know, one of those people, I guess a bit like a Hamish and Andy sort where it's like, he's like a TV presenter and he's like all over TV yeah. and he's very recognizable. So very, been working on that. Yeah. Recognizable and famous locally. <laughs> yes, exactly. Maybe like a Grant Daniel sort of person. Yeah, like, really. yeah. Presenting TV shows and stuff. Anyway, he has gone missing. So that's sort of occupying her mind. And then one day a girl comes in and says that her flatmate is missing and she gives her the name. And Frankie is like, that sounds very familiar. And it turns out that it is the victim in the murder box. And the murder box is not a game. It's real. Oh. Yeah. So that was... but like, is it a it. game? And she's like, but this is the case in the game. Or is it like someone had sent her materials to for a real case? Um, <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Is it um, like both? I mean, I guess like, is it? Someone, someone has created a game. Or based on the real case. No, they're also acting like the game is real real oh yes. okay I get it, I so, get it. Yeah. yeah but it's not it's like usually these things are you know just fake cases or yeah. you know whatever so they have to track down who the other players are and try and figure out who the killer is and is the killer a player and who else got these boxes and yeah it's it's really I I that got really, really into cool. it I think I started it on like Saturday or something so it was very very quick read very nice pacey thriller if you're looking for you know, just something really quick to get lost in. Loved it. Um, the thing that I thought was funny about it is actually a few weeks ago we did a murder mix. Uh, a few weeks ago we did a murder mystery box. Uh, my friend Vanessa, who listens to this podcast, hi Vanessa. Um, she bought one of those murder mystery games and we did it at her house. It was the same sort of thing where you like have to do one part and then you go and log it in on the computer and then you can move on to the next part oh, and. Yeah. 
yeah it was really it was really cool it was really cool so I was just like oh how funny is this Vanessa we need to do another one when I'm home for Christmas because <laughs> I want to play it was a lot more involved than we expected that sounds so cool. I really like the sound of that. That sounds exactly like the kind of thriller that I would actually like. It's like a board game. <laughs> yes, and we know that the Tuies love a board game. We do, <laughs> we do. And we particularly love Cluedo, so it's right up my yes. alley. That sounds awesome. And just very quick sidebar, side recommendation, I suppose. I've been watching Only Murders in the Building. Have you heard about this show? Yeah, You're going to love it. It's so good. <laughs> we've started watching another another sidebar as well because I think I feel like only murders in the building has a a, quite a comedy element to it as well we've also started watching the cleaner with Greg Davies who is a crime so Greg Davies is a British comedian he's a crime scene cleaner so it's like a comedy but like he's a bit serious but it's it's a half hour comedy like sitcom show and he's the cleaner the first episode has Helena Bonham Carter in it like cool it's yeah it's really cool it's really cool so yeah some fun recommendations they're crime related recommendations yeah and believe me a sitcom with selena gomez steve martin and martin short is about as crimey as i get so that's (laughs) yeah Yeah. all for me my recommendation uh that i wanted to share and chat about today is blackout which is an anthology uh series i it's not a series. It's an anthology book. It's six novellas, and I listen to it on audio. But it's structured really, really well. Six different stories um, about black teenagers in New York in the middle of a blackout, all trying to get to or slash end up at this like block party, street party in Brooklyn. That sounds so fun. It's I love so anthology fun. YA like that. Oh, that's so oh, cool. It's so good, Michelle. And like. Honestly, I had I already knew this before I started reading, listening, but I forgot. And I was listening to it thinking, God, I can see this so clearly. This would be such an amazing movie, such a good like TV series maybe, you know, like um, similar to Let It Snow that was on Netflix or even, you know, as all the stories intersect like a la the Love Actually type movies. And then as I was thinking about that, I Googled it and I knew but had forgot it's already been acquired by the Obama's production company and they're producing Amazing. it for Netflix to be a TV yes. show. So who are the authors involved? So the authors are um, Donielle Clayton, Tiffany D. Jackson, Nick Stone, Ashley Woodfolk, Nicola Yoon and Angie Thomas. Amazing. Oh, that yeah. sounds incredible. It's an, it's an incredible lineup, and it's like done really, really well too because the one of the stories I don't, I honestly, I think I forget which one, like I forget which author wrote which book, which story, I mean. But one of the stories, um, The Long Walk, is literally about two people trying to get from like a meeting that they were at in like Harlem, I think, all the way down (laughs) to Brooklyn. And the story is called The Long Walk. Um, And so that is split up into sections. So you get like a little bit of their story in between all the others and then so it's like when they finally get to the block party you know that everyone else is there oh it's that's really clever. cool and it oh all the stories are so great I mean there's one where like there's two boys like stuck on a train like in a subway tunnel Ooh. terrifying but like they yeah, figure no, it out for me thank you yeah <laughs> no um and there's one where 
someone is like a rideshare driver um, and a passenger and then it's like a blackout, traffic is crazy, they run out of petrol, like, oh, yeah. it was so good. It so sounds good. amazing. Um, sort of reminds me a bit of a few years ago, I read one called Flawed, which was by, I think, seven UKYA authors. Yeah. And so each person had a character and it wasn't short stories and it was actually a novel, but it would switch between each character and basically they are all in, a, in an elevator and something happens in that elevator that basically bonds them in a way so that happens at the start and then it continues you know the aftermath of that what happens how their their lives intersect a bit and it's got cool. like um oh you'd love it you would really love it and it was such a cool way of doing storytelling um so yeah blackout sounds amazing and oh. you're right I had also seen that come up on Instagram a while ago and just sort of you know, sort of filed it away as as something to to follow up with. But yes, that sounds incredible. Yeah, it was really good. Um, and again, I always fucking forget to do this, but it was published by HarperCollins. But I don't work in the children's team, so it's not like <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, that's um, all right. But yeah, but it was still <laughs> so good. I would have wanted to read it anyway because, like, I mean, the lineup of authors, yeah, amazing. incredible. And seriously, I think, like, even when, like, I was listening to it, I listened to it on audio, but even when you're reading it or listening to it, you'll be able to see the characters, like, so clearly and them, like, walking down the dark streets with the, <sighs> you know, the lights all out in Times Square. Like, can you, can't you just, like, see it? It'll be such a good TV show. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it will be amazing. It will be so good. I can't wait to see that and I can't wait to read it first. Yeah. It's incredible. I know yeah. plenty of time to read it before you see it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, I guess we better get on with the interview. Our guest today was one of the very first people to join us on Better Words, but We'll be honest, the sound quality was very bad, so don't try and listen to it, please. Um, anyway, our guest has been a supporter of the show from the very beginning. She's also one of the biggest champions of Australian literature for young adults and children. She's a literary agent and editor, the person who has helped several of our previous guests secure their publishing deals. In 2017, she edited the first hashtag LoveOzYA anthology of short stories, and then her debut middle grade novel, The Year the Maps Changed, was published, and it was a CBCA notable book for younger readers 2021 and shortlisted for multiple awards. Today, though, we are going to be focusing on her debut young adult novel, The Monster of Her Age, which has just been released. So welcome back to Better Words original friend of the show, Danielle Binks. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. I am one of the originals. Uh, thank you for having me back. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you both. Thank you so much for joining us. You really are like the original. I think I actually don't remember if it was you or Gabrielle Toza who we interviewed first, but we were like freaking out. I think we had both of you like on the phone. It was so yeah. bad. We're much more professional now, Danielle. <laughs> there's, there's programs, there's screens happening. Yeah, last time it was, uh, you were just starting out. The whole podcasting thing was just, you guys were, you were on it. 
you were right at the start of this whole books podcasting thing taking off. So, you know, don't be ashamed of that. You were just so early. Uh, we didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had to catch up to you. Um, so you know, congratulations how far you've come. And the place looks great, everyone. Oh, thank you. But thank you. Also, like... Sometimes I forget how impressive your little bio is there. As Michelle's reading it out, I'm like, oh, my God. And to think of how many guests that we have had on that are your authors is, God, we should have counted. It would be. I think it would be over 10. Oh, wow. Really? Oh, I think I, it I might like be. It, I feel like it would be because we've got, we've got Anna Waitley, Kay Kerr, way back Margot McGovern. Oh, yeah. Um, Carly Finlay. Yes, Carly. Yeah, we've had Carly on twice. Yeah. That's really impressive. And to think that I think when I first started talking to you, I was still trying to build up my list of authors as a literary agent. Like not many of them had yet been published when I I first spoke to you. And then, of course, Margot was the first cab off the rank with Neverland. Uh, So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, I didn't even mention in there how I first met you or knew of you through your blog alpha reader back in the day as well like yeah honestly you are like you are the lovers way i seen <laughs> oh gosh no it makes me just kind of feel old uh but also proud that i've you know had a little bit of staying power and now i'm like transitioning into a new phase having become an author now you know it kind of started with the begin and begin anthology where that was my first story published in an anthology of short stories and now it's all coming to fruition with my own work. It's kind of cool. It's very it is. You've also just joined, is it RMIT? You've just joined there as a, as a teacher as well, like, which is incredible. That's my alum. I did RMIT professional writing and editing uh, back in the day, and they invited me back to teach their writing stream for the associate degree. So I've, I've been doing that all in virtual learning. <laughs> I, I did have it pitched me. I think they invited me in about May. And in May, in the heady days of May 2021, I was going to see yeah. Girls the Musical with Carly Findlay. That was great. I went off to Brisbane at one point. I went to the Port Ferry Literary Festival. Everything was happening. And then I got invited to do the RMIT writing stream. And it was kind of pitched to me as it'll definitely be in-person learning. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> no, We're on the up and up here. <laughs> Yeah, we're seven weeks in and I've only had one in-person class and the one class I had, it was on the night that Dan Andrews called a press conference at 4pm to say that there was an 8.30 curfew and my class starts at 5.30 and goes till 8.30. Oh so we had to, there was no, there was no chance to, to shift it to online because I come from Frankston Way and I had to go into the city so there was no getting back in time for a virtual class. So I, it was me and about five other students who rocked up. And we had to we had to finish it early so we could all get home before the curfew. Oh my god, how stressful! In person, I could be, I you know don't spook me on this. I could be a terrible teacher. They may hate me. They may all be conspiring to get me kicked out. I might be horrible. I who knows? Because it's all virtual. You know. It's- I guess you'll never know until you get those anonymous feedback surveys that I never filled out when I was. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, <laughs> if it is bad, I'll just say, well, it was all virtual. It was very hard. Yeah, that's yeah. why. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm sure you're. I'm fault. sure you're a great teacher. <laughs> it's fine. I'm sure you're great. Um, <laughs> so yeah. when I come up with it, I, I find it really fun, and I'm learning stuff, and it's good to put into words what I've kind of always known instinctively about books and writing, but having to articulate it to others 
who then feed it back to me with questions and queries and and want to extrapolate a little bit about the craft of writing is really good for me. So I, I really much, I very enjoy it. That was all kind of word jumbled. You get <laughs> But they do sort of say that like the the highest level of learning is actually teaching other people like yeah. in, in the hierarchy of how you are absorbing information best. So that makes that makes total sense. Um, I've I've got a new idea that I've got to get down into a first draft of the manuscript, and it's really interesting teaching writing. And then every time I teach something, I think I should do that when I write this. <laughs> I've got to take your own <laughs> advice. Yeah, yeah, there's something in the back of my head that I go, I should write this down. That's a good tip. To yeah, you should definitely have an emotional, <laughs> a philosophical, and an external stake. Yeah, that's good. And <laughs> yeah, and it's like just remember that, Danny. I'll put that on a sticky note somewhere and write it down when you do your first draft. <laughs> It's like when I like, cause part of what I do in my business is mentoring people about their content marketing. And then like, when I actually step back and do it myself for my business, I'm like, Oh, this actually does work. Oh, that makes sense now because I've, Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> like um, that galaxy mem of somebody's brain becoming a galaxy of understanding. That's what it's yeah. like to yeah. be a teacher and then applying what you're teaching to your own work. Yeah. It's kind of nice. And you do have moments of thinking, actually what I'm saying might be helpful. Oh, well done, me. (laughs) (laughs) I am the greatest. (laughs) Well, as you're taking all of those tips into writing your next novel, Danielle, we should ask you about the one that you've just published. So how about, I guess, to officially start us off, you tell us and our listeners a bit about The Monster of Her Age. So The Monster of Her Age is a young adult novel. It's set in 2019, so take a deep breath. You're not going to have to deal with the pandemic in this one. It deals with the Lovinger acting family, uh, a family of Tasmanian thespians who have prestige in film, theatre and television, stepping back to the days of the very first feature-length film, which was Australian, uh, The Kelly Gang. The matriarch of the family is Lottie Lovinger, who is so famous, she's kind of a Jamie Lee Curtis-esque slasher star from 80s schlock horror films that's what she really got known as that was what she was the most famous for um and then the youngest member of the Lovinger family is the protagonist Ali and Ali was on a trajectory to becoming a similar film star like her grandmother like other ancestors before her but when she was 11 she and Lottie actually starred together in an indie horror film called Blood and Jacaranda in which Ali played the child monster of this franchise and she didn't have a great experience on the film set. There was a tyrannical uh, director and Lottie didn't really protect her very well because Lottie herself was quite fame hungry at that time. So Ali had a pretty awful experience from that and was somewhat gaslit by her family into believing that she didn't. So she's gone away. She's been overseas. She's been in Melbourne. She hasn't seen her family in Hobart for quite a few years now. But she's returning when the book begins because Lottie is on her deathbed and she needs to somehow come to peace with what happened. And helping her to do that is the meeting of a young woman called Rhea who runs a feminist horror film club at the famous uh, State Cinema in Hobart. So befriending and possibly mooring with Rhea helps Ali to see herself and her family's history and trajectory in a different light and to start thinking about art and horror in different ways uh, to help her come to her grief and acceptance and forgiveness of Lottie. Oh, you've got the elevator pitch down pat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, I too want to ask you a bit about how you got inspired for this, like, big family film 
legacy thing I think if I'm right it was like the Barrymore family which if I'm honest I don't actually know that much about so I'm so we're so young we're like I'm oh sorry. yeah Drew Barrymore like she was in ET as well and we forget mm-hmm. that and angels yeah we're, we're all so young that like for me Jamie Lee Curtis I'm like oh yeah Freaky Friday <laughs> oh. oh wow I know I Way know more about Jamie Lee Curtis than that <laughs> I mean I knew about her I knew but I uh, that's the picture I have is that not the horror movies that I she was in I mean uh, well because I don't watch horror movies but we need to talk about that but I think my <laughs> main um, point for Jamie Lee Curtis is actually Screen Queens that Ryan Murphy TV series from a few years ago and yeah, she that works too. That. that works too I like yeah. that as well that works especially for what I was doing with Jamie Lee Curtis in this book as well um, yeah. you know the Screen Queens was totally them taking the Jamie Lee Curtis legacy of horror film franchises and building something new with it which is really really cool yeah so like, I'll, I'll take that reference but no the, Bar- the Barrymore's are like Drew Barrymore who I've long been obsessed with who I absolutely love and adore yeah, uh, she's, she's actually from a pretty prestigious acting family uh John Barrymore her great-grandfather or maybe great-great-grandfather was one of the silent era film stars mm-hmm. and he has this there's a particularly great urban legend about him that actually has been confirmed as true by Drew Barrymore which was her father her great-great-grandfather John Barrymore when he died he was friends with the likes of Errol Flynn etc that kind of like rap pack before it was the actual Frank Sinatra pack (laughs) would people so when John Barrymore died apparently he had a pact with these friends that they would play one more round of poker with him so they stole his body his dead body from the funeral home stole it away to go and to prop him up and play one more round of poker with him. And Drew Barrymore was recently asked about this on a late night talk show. She was asked to confirm or deny if this, if this absolute legend about her family was true or not. And she said it was true, 100% true. And there is some rumour that that anecdote is what inspired a really famous 80s film called Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. say this. That's such she, a weird story. I can't believe that's real. She doesn't know if that is true or not, that it inspired Weekend. And there's another film that it supposedly inspired that also features a dead body being propped up and, you know, <laughs> carted around town. But, yeah, for sure. I And I knew that story for such a long time and I knew that Drew Barrymore herself was a child actor and how fascinating that was. She had a really a big downward spiral for a long time and certainly my generation I knew of Drew Barrymore as this kind of hedonistic, wild child of Hollywood who was Mm. kind of Lindsay Lohan of her time back when she was a teenager and growing up and things. Yeah, she Um, does often get pulled out in the, like, child stars gone bad kind of example. I guess it's also sort of the way that we look at Paris Hilton sometimes as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so all of that was, was kind of going into the mix of what inspired me, was knowing all that Hollywood legend and history and stuff. And then it was also totally knowing the reputations that like Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, um, Britney Spears even have had and had to deal with as young people growing up in the spotlight, not necessarily always of Hollywood as with Britney Spears, that was the music industry, but knowing all that. And I think there's been a really big change from the early to mid 2000s to now, obviously, as we've got more information, particularly about the free Britney movement in particular. um, I think it's been really interesting transition to us knowing more about these people and feeling sorry for them and seeing that they were abused by the industry and the machine of it all as well. And in that is also, is also the Me Too movement. Of course, the Me Too movement happened and it was largely focused on Hollywood as the first kind of incendiary flame that highlighted how much these men have been operating in the public eye uh, mm. for far too long. So all of that was kind of in the mix. And then it was that I am just a huge horror fan. 
and I and I and I have always wondered just the curious part of my brain I would wonder things like after watching The Exorcist I would wonder how Linda Blair felt after appearing in The Exorcist what was it like the first year back at school after appearing in The Exorcist playing Reagan being this iconic monster and a child monster where her face is still very recognizable even as she's distorted in her um demonic possession you can still tell it's her when you see her as an actress and I always just thought what was it like her going back to school having been in the exorcist and then of course deciding that I wanted to investigate that there's a reason that there's a Linda Blair quote in the very beginning of my book which is where she says the exorcist has been a very interesting cross to bear and I just thought "Ooh, there's something here so I just kept following those threads but it's totally it all started from just being a, a massive geek, somebody that would that pop would, culture geek, <laughs> pop culture geek who would just consume this kind of factoid IMDb trivia stuff. Like I love, we love that here. I we love that here. Absolutely love IMDb, IMDb <laughs> trivia. I never watch anything without looking it up. <laughs> you, you need to tell everyone else in the room with you what the trivia is behind what you're I watching. Do. constantly it happens to me constantly that I'll be watching something with other people and the 10 minutes after I've looked something up and I think to myself they're not interested someone will say what's this person in and I'll be like I I just I'm like I've already looked it up I can tell you Uh or they'll be like oh that building's cool and I'm like they actually filmed that (laughs) and I'm like because I've already looked it up I can't help myself the like has everyone been looking at where Ted Lasso is filmed and thinking like I'm going to put this down on my you know to travel list and like everywhere I've been watching Nine Perfect Strangers as well and thinking I have to get to Byron Bay eventually uh all of that yeah I love filming locations and IMDb and I love trivia on IMDb and also I like reading taglines on IMDb Danielle you're the only other person that I know that has been to the village of Gothland where they film Heartbeat in in Yorkshire yeah it's it's such a funny like it's 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 such a weird sort of thing and obviously like Caitlin loves Brooklyn Nine-Nine and there's the whole thing with Jake and Nakatomi Plaza and yeah all this sort of stuff it amazes me sometimes even the most like what I consider some of the most basic trivia is like when you say to people no you know that friends never filmed a single episode in New York and they go bullshit and I'm like no they filmed on a lot in Hollywood where everything is filmed like yeah a lot so now the friends lot yeah I have been going to trivia um for the last few weeks since we got back and fun fact I learned at trivia last night uh, a few weeks ago you know once we've released this Mm -hmm. is that a singular spaghetti is a spaghetto so (laughs) enjoy that um also, we did have a question about the Very tower amazing. in um, Die Hard, and the only I was like, it's Nakatomi Plaza, and I know that because of Jake in Brooklyn Nine Nine. Oh, Thank you. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful, love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, back to the book, I guess. Um, <laughs> I did. I definitely don't blame you, Danielle, for wanting to explore that thing of like the child star, particularly in horror films. And I hadn't really thought about it that much because I haven't watched many horror films, if any. <laughs> Um, but I did always, I do always wonder that about kids and TV shows and you wonder how do they get the toddler to laugh when they're going to laugh or like cry when they're supposed to cry. And, um, one thing that I really thought of when reading the sections, particularly when Ellie was talking about her experience on the set later in the book Mm -hmm. was 
um, about Shirley Temple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Michelle and I both love Just the Gist. Do you listen to Just the Gist? No, I do not. Oh. What is this? Oh, this is Rosie Waterland's podcast. Oh, okay. Right. I know Rosie Waterland. She's yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's so she amazing. Pod- yeah, it's so funny. So she has a podcast um, where she and her friend Jacob, like, yeah, tell each other these, like, just the gist of the funny stories. But they did an episode kind of recently, Michelle. I, I would say, like, a last month few or months. two ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, all about Shirley Temple and her experience on film sets and how they would, like, say, like, she would be calling for her mother and they'd be like, yeah. no. You can't she's see her like or whatever to, like, book, make her cry. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. she had a really odd experience. Horrible. She was also in the very early stuff that she was in was uh, the whole concept was kind of sexualizing young kids and making them yes. very adult. It was, like, baby porn stuff. Oh, my God, it was crazy. It was so really weird. It's really cringy to watch back now and think, how did they ever think this was okay? Because they were so young. They were toddlers walking around recreating adult storylines but subbing in toddlers and children to play them. It's such a weird freaking concept. And it's one of those, again, urban legends of Hollywood. When you hear it, you think that can't possibly be what happened. Because, you know, you think about the the time when Shirley Temple was coming up as like very puritanical, very Bible thumping. But no, they thought that was legit entertainment. They thought it was adorable. And it's just horrifying. And there's so many stories of that we also know uh I I really enjoyed like the Renee Zellweger film about Liza Minnelli the biopic of that and what she went through yeah there's so many horrible stories from that era of just how terribly people were treated and it's also more current there was a really great documentary I watched called Showbiz Kids where they interviewed a lot of uh, current adult actors who were recognizable film stars in the late 90s early 2000s like Evan Rachel Wood was on there she had a really fascinating background, Evan Rachel Wood. If you don't know her, I knew Evan Rachel Wood from the te- television show Once and Again. But she's on Westworld. She did True Blood for quite a few seasons, etc. Oh my god, what was that great indie film that she did? Thirteen, just a really great indie film. But she talked about how her parents ran a children's theater company where she grew up, so she was kind of streamlined into being an actor. And they really guilt tripped her into doing it. Like they would say to her, "You got all this talent. What are you going to do with it?" It would be a real shame if you didn't put it. Real like stage parent. Yes, you're hella talented. But interviewing, you know, her being interviewed as an adult now, she kind of said, and, you know, she's had a really toxic relationship with Marilyn Manson that she's um, spoken about most recently. But she said, I can't do anything else now because I was streamlined into this and I was never encouraged to do anything else. I'm stuck in this industry now. I don't have anything else to do. And she, she herself now has a child that she's being very protective of and does not want to see in the industry because she knows how bad it is. I actually um, heard an interview with Josh Peck recently um, about his new, because he's doing a new TV show um, on Disney Plus, Turner and Hooch, but obviously Josh Peck was on Drake and Josh, Nickelodeon, all that stuff. And he said recently, like in a bit more of like a jokey way, but like he can't, like that show was so it literally had his name in it it's so it was so famous and popular and he's so recognizable what's he gonna do he can't get a normal job now he's just like we'll just keep doing this I I also found it really fascinating listening to Amanda Bynes who's recently started talking and doing really fascinating she had huge body dysmorphia where she couldn't watch herself on screen because she thought she looked a certain way and that was really what pushed her into kind of making herself look very different in appearance because she didn't want to look like she did on the screen since she was a preteen on the Amanda mm-hmm. show. 
Amanda. Amanda. (laughs) It's just incredible to think, like, she would watch herself on the screen and think that she was overweight. And all of a sudden, she never was. She never was. But that sort of body dysmorphia really, really harmed her. And, you know, she's been suggesting, I think, that she never had a great experience on various shows because various showrunners were very exploitative, etc. So it's interesting as well that we're coming up in an era now where child stars can be articulate about this because there's been such yeah. a long history of it. Um, so, you know, I got to plumb all those depths for this in my book, which wasn't the, the happiest and the cheeriest of research, but I so came to appreciate that things are getting better and different now if only because so many people spoke up, had the courage to speak up and make changes and demand changes. People who were really, really young at the time and couldn't advocate for themselves are now trying to advocate for other people, which I just think is incredible. And I just tip my hat to them and say that could not have been easy because that's your bread and butter as well. And back on the industry must be incredibly hard. So difficult, yeah. Um, Another book that is um, for a younger audience as well, it's a YA book by Juno Dawson, sort of explores this um, within the fashion industry, which is Meat Market. It's really amazing in a similar sort of way of like um, just looking at the exploitative practices and the things that have been accepted for a long time in the industry and the process of having the courage to speak out about it as well. I also loved, um, this is for an adult audience, but The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid, which is, is looking at the golden age of Hollywood, old Hollywood, and gives hints of just how toxic it was, particularly if you were queer, uh, and having to hide that in Hollywood, which I found, I, I love Taylor Jenkins Reid. I loved her newest one, Malibu Rising. I love everything that she writes. I'm very excited for Daisy Jones and the Six to be adapted Uh, But that book as well, I think, did a really great job of similar to what I was doing or I was very much taking inspiration from Taylor Jenkins Reid who made a a fictional film history. Uh, I did the same thing but made it Australian. Uh, I loved what she did there, but she was very clearly making commentary about some very well-known actors that we can all think of when when you read that book and think that you know who she's speaking about without actually directly naming them. And I just thought that was incredible. Wonderful. Um, So you mentioned as well that you're a massive horror fan, which – really took me by surprise because like I feel like I've gotten to know you a lot through Instagram over the years and this was I was just like what I had no idea um so yeah why why do you love horror movies and why did you want to explore them here and I do th- yeah. I do think in the, the book same story explain why yeah yeah but like but, the same yeah. sort of story didn't necessarily have to be a horror film and the horror stars and the family it's totally because I'm a, I'm a horror nerd. Like, I love the Conjuring films. I, I love The Exorcist. I try and watch The Exorcist at least once a year in the dark when I'm home alone. Oh, I can't. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, it, it once had it explained to me, one of my friend's favourite movies of all time was Zodiac. You know, like the Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr. film about the Zodiac killer. Yes. And yes. it's a really long procedural. And I kind of said to her. So long. So I kind of said to her, how is that? Because I think we're talking about the, the films that you can most easily rewatch. And she listed that. And I was like, how can you rewatch that? You know what's going to come. And it's so long and so tedious. And she was like, no, no, no. I love it because of the beats. I know exactly all the twists and turns. And there's uh, safety in knowing what's coming next. And it's the procedural nature of it is what she gravitates towards. Because I also thought of all the books that I love, like I'm a huge Karen Slaughter fan. And she has like a Grant County series. Um, that I love, which is an ongoing serial. Uh, but I think, God, I've never gone back to reread those books because why would I? Because they're crime and I know what's going to happen. Like, I don't really think of them as a good reread. 
But for a certain type of brain, of course, that could be a good reread if you know what's coming and there's comfort in recognizing the beats and seeing how it's all put together. And I think I kind of get that in terms of horror. I love knowing that I'm going to be jump scared in all the same places, that I'm going to get my my heart racing in all the same places when I watch scary films. I freaking love that. I also love more contemporary horror films like It Follows. It Follows is such a creepy, fantastic horror about – it's talking about – they say that it's a film that turns into horror – rape culture on on campus it's this film about a young woman who has a sexual encounter with a man willingly happily that after the fact she discovers that she's being followed by these naked people who start walking at her in various locations and she can't get away from them and only she can see them and they're kind of a stand-in for like stds as a repercussion of having had this you know someone didn't tell her that they were carrying some sort of disease etc um there's a lot of ways you can interpret that and the director has actually never spoken to what he thinks the sub in is of this particular film but it follows love that film i do love the conjuring films not that i loved who they're based on but they're filmed by the australian director who i absolutely love james wan who i just love the australian director who also did like the saw the saw films and i i saw the saw movies when i was like a teenager like way too young um like way too young but yeah I love them they're about um Ed and Lorraine Warren who were these kind of bible thumping believed in demonic spirits and ghosts and everything and and expelling demons and stuff but I do love the Conjuring films I think again because I just think that Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are just great uh and I'm also a really big fan of Guillermo del Toro Pan's Labyrinth uh he's also got this really great horror film Devil's Backbone uh I love his horror films because they're always set um in a time of Spanish history so the Spanish Civil War is something that he keeps coming back to as a theme in his horror films because that's a moment of great change in his country and he always inserts child characters dealing with the adult world and a spiritual world at the same time that I find really really fascinating in all his films uh but no I love horror films I love being scared like I've even even re-watched what I consider to be pretty subpar horror films like The Woman in Black the Daniel Radcliffe updated version of that um that book I, I was I'm mostly horrified at watching that to see Daniel Radcliffe playing a father <laughs> and, and making myself feel very old. <laughs> That's mostly what I get horror filled out of out of the woman in black. But there is a particular yeah. scare in that film that I wait for and I anticipate. And I, I also love the rise in horror television, The Haunting of Hill House. Mwah, sublime, subliminal, love it. Thought the haunt, the Haunting of Hill House. I've rewatched that about two or three times. I mean, that's so... Oh, my goodness. And I like looking out for all the little ghosts that are stuck in all the scenes. There's lots of Easter egg ghosts that are um, in scenes but hiding, and I love looking for them. I enjoy it. We're both flabbergasted. Even me yeah. telling you the plots of some of these films, I can see your eyes getting wider and thinking... No, We're no, like, ah! No. Oh, <laughs> I, like, sci- like, I can... Like, psychological thrillers are about as far as I can go, which... it. It's funny that that's what I can deal with because those are mostly real life. Like yeah. that is more based in reality. Yeah. But I find, I, I don't know, I find some comfort in the fact that, I don't know, my mind just goes crazy if I watch a horror movie and then I'm like, oh, my God, what was that? But, like, I don't get the same fear of, like, I watched Red Dragon for the first time a few weeks ago. Hannibal Lecter, yes. Amazing film. Yeah. Very, like, it's creepy not I would say it's creepy not scary and I think that's where I like that creepy not scary psychological thrillers so I can I can understand 
I can understand where you're coming from, but yeah, I my I feel sick watching them, so I can't. Okay, so we're different ages though, and when I was growing up, the height of like teen cinema was stuff like the Scream films and the I Know What You Did Last Summer films. Like that was those were the coolest films to go and watch at the cinema with your friends because they were creepy and cool and horror filled, and they were our versions of like the eighty slashes. That was us. The Wes Craven of it all was him kind of re-energizing the horror genre for our generation. Those all loom so large in my pop culture revelry. So I have such a a fandom for those films and they're not good to rewatch now. (laughs) Watch it and think, God, whatever happened to Jennifer Love Hewitt? Like, where is she? Uh, (laughs) And Sarah Michelle Gellar love seeing them on screen together. You beautiful couple. And Drew Barrymore, the Drew Barrymore Barrymore of it all, that that kind of reignited her career in the modern age is just so fantastic to me. Um, But yeah, that I grew up, I grew up in an age where it was very cool to see horror reinventing itself in the 90s and early 2000s and I still get that thrill from them and I still like getting that little zing of horror through me I just I want it to be cool I think and going to see a scary movie is always like cool in high school I just don't think I ever did it I could never I mean I was never cool in high no. school so that's just another thing to tick off my list but you need to listen to the just the gist episode that Rosie does on the Blair Witch Project yeah. um even listening to that made me feel I was like I couldn't listen to this at night and she's just telling you what happens like such, that was such a phenomenon I saw that in the cinemas as like a teenager and it was such an incredible campaign that built it up bigger in your mind because when you're actually there, yes. you're literally watching a fuzzy screen of black for like <laughs> two hours and but <laughs> it was all the build-up behind it that made it frightening uh and you know it was only in the last two seconds that you saw somebody it wasn't you didn't even see the witch you saw somebody standing in the corner refusing to look at the person behind the camera yeah and it was the iconic snot face that replicated in every scary movie. Uh, but my gosh, that was just a fantastic campaign of psycho. That was the real psychological horror of the Blair Witch Project was the way that it made you question if it was real or not. And the kind of whisper network campaign it had of people saying, no, 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 it's true. It's a legit documentary. It's not made up. That was what made it iconic. That was like yeah. a full-blown psychological trick played on us where I spent money, like I said, watch a fuzzy screen for two hours. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, and that's what this Just the Gist episode delves right into that. So if you're listening to this and being like, wait, what? Like, what's the whole thing behind it? Like, the marketing? Yeah. Genius. I'm like, saying. this whole, it's amazing. So she goes into that, but she also goes into, like, the stuff behind, like, the snot face scenes and everything of, there, there is a little, a little element of you know blood and jacaranda's story of yeah. if I'm remembering correctly, where they did actually leave them in the, the woods and make all those sounds and genuinely terrify them in a way. Um, so I think I think you're going to find that very interesting. So start with that and then listen to Shirley Temple episode <laughs> and then and then listen to all the others because actually you know this is my lockdown recommendation for okay. you because this got me when I discovered this it was like the first lockdown in the UK and I had so many to listen to then and you were just going to love it. If you don't think you can handle watching horror films or television, can I give you a podcast to listen to that's a horror podcast? It's a horror fiction podcast called Bridgewater and the producers and one of the stars is that Misha Collins from Supernatural. It's a very good podcast. It's still ongoing at the moment, I think, but I do believe it's going to have a season two. It's got such a star, a, a star-studded cast. It's got like Nathan Fillion, 
Uh, I love a fiction podcast. Now, Van Stratton, who's from True Blood, and I, I love True Blood. Uh, Will Wheaton is in it. Uh, Karan Sony is in it. It's so good. And um, yeah, Misha Collins is a producer and one of the stars. Bridgewater. It's Bridgewater. So freaky because the sound design is incredible. I listen to it when I'm out walking my dog, and I do frequently think that there's something behind me because the way that they play with sound, making it. <gasps> and it's so good love that feeling love that Um, for me you need to listen to radio rental as well which is another podcast but that is true stories but bizarre true scary stories told by those who live them so they like write in um and yeah some of them are like there are some ghost ones there are some true crime ones but they're all true apparently i just had to bring up on my oh you can't see that uh (laughs) the noble blood podcast by dana schwartz which is a combination of it's bloody history basically she just she tells you historic tales of some of her famous figures throughout history like Marie Antoinette but she telling she kind of tells you the gory true stories behind how they were killed what their lives were like noble blood it's often a little bit spooky because it's true history I find that very disturbing um so yeah you learn about things like what like how they murdered Marie Antoinette in the French Revolution and you're like, oh my god, gross. But then you keep coming back for more. It's a very disturbing podcast and I love that. I love that for me. It's <laughs> during pandemic times, you know, to almost like mirror. But I do love the contrast of me listening to these scary, horrifying podcasts while I'm at my dog who's just trotting along. Little adorable <laughs> and it's and it's the middle of the day and it's so beautiful outside. And here I am just listening to murder podcasts in my ear holes. Like, are you kidding me? I listen I best. listen to true crime while I'm, you know, doing my Aldi shop. So yeah, I'm just like these people. Awesomely. Yeah, you need the aftermath <laughs> of Aldi. <laughs> Amazing. Like, mm, yes, Aldi special buys with some side of murder. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, totally. I have to say, Danielle, reading the monster of her age is probably the first thing in a long time that's made me want to try watching a horror movie. So well done. Thank you. Um, but also go to Hobart. Oh, yeah, I love it. Absolutely loved it. I squeezed in a trip to Hobart in December 2019, uh, already knowing that I was going to set it there because of the kind of Hollywood to Hobart alliteration and also because that's where Errol Flynn is from. So there was already that kind of um, old school Australian dynasty there for me. But I also did just think I haven't read a lot of Aussie YA set in Hobart. Exactly. That was what I thought when I read this. I was like, Amazing. I love it. Because you are from Melbourne or like around Melbourne. And so I would expect you to set a book in Melbourne. And I love that it's in Hobart. Like, yes. I love that. I liked that it was, it's a very walkable city, even though it's all freaking hills. I loved that. I wanted to be a kind of um, cute little surrounds, but it's also got that history there. Hobart's a very old colonial still, um, lots of you know original buildings and stuff and a lots lots of original like grave works and that kind of thing really cool uh and a really disturbing history as well for the indigenous massacres that happened there not that I was leaning into that obviously and I you know don't mention them or anything but it has that horror-filled history that I wanted to lean into and then alongside that is the beauty of it which I thought was a really good kind of um stand in for how Ellie's feeling she misses this place she loves this place but it also holds horrible memories for her and I thought the city had that duality to it because it's a, it's an old city like it's like London's an old city you know it can be beautiful it can be stunning but there's also Jack the Ripper was there you know it's got yeah. that side of it and I just kind of wanted that in Hobart but mostly it was 
the Hollywood to Hobart alliteration, the Errol Flynn of it all, and that I thought it's time that there'd be a YA, a new YA set in Hobart to give it some love. And I do absolutely adore Hobart. It's a beautiful city. Uh, I want to move there, especially now. <laughs> I, yes. I follow this, this beautiful Instagrammer called Katie Parrott, who is um, just a fashion superstar but I she lives in Hobart and I've been following her account for so long now but I just like when she posts things like going to get a pedicure not because I'm a weirdo foot fetishist but just because I like seeing someone out and about being able to do the thing that I really want to get done leaving their house yeah yeah Yeah. I'm just like oh show me the the nail color you're gonna get yes (laughs) I I want to move to Hobart just because it's the closest I can get to England in Australia and it is it's very English it's very cottagecore. If you need a word to summarise Hobart, it's very cottagecore cute. If I can up the tourism to Hobart in any way, I'll be happy because it's such a beautiful city that we should all be investing in and protecting its natural habitats, as Richard Flanagan, the author from there, does beautifully with the salmon industry that he's been calling out lately. Um, I love Hobart, Nipaluna, fantastic city. I can't wait to go back there. Let's hope it's soon. Let's just hope it's soon. (laughs) I hope we can all go there soon because particularly now that, you know, international travel is off the table for a while, I just really want to be able to go to other places in Australia that I haven't been to. And the only states I haven't been to is Tasmania, Western Australia and Northern Territory. Oh, which actually is a lot. It's like that whole side of the country. But um, <laughs> I haven't been to Northern Territory. No. I've been to every state. Oh, well, for you. I love. Yeah. Yeah, I have. <laughs> and every capital, yeah. I would actually really love to, one, go to Hobart. I want to travel on the GAN. I really want to yeah. Yeah. I've done that. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, my gosh. That is That's expensive. so cool, Michelle. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, so I I mean, I didn't pay for it, Danielle. Um, it was a holiday that my dad, like, organised when I finished grade 12, actually. Oh, and we also did the Indian Pacific, like, a few years before. So, yeah, That's done so both cool. those things. Really yeah. It, yeah. It's yeah. Really my family's done, like, hundreds of road trips and camping trips and everything, but all on the East Coast. We've just never I mean, driven further. There are five of you, so it's it obviously... It a while like, to get very far. Yeah, so. and it's, like, it's... Family holidays are expensive. Like it's different when there's just two of you. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, he was he he loved that so much. Um, actually, this probably that's probably a good segue. So I was gonna say, speaking of my dad, um, one of the things that struck me most about the book and your writing, Danielle, was the way that you explore grief. Um, and there's that particularly strange kind of grief that Ellie is experiencing around waiting for a loved one to die. And you do talk about that explicitly in the book. Um, but also like knowing that it's their time, like it's not a tragedy. Lottie is an elderly woman. She's had this amazing life and, you know, just accepting that. Um, and I think that's something that I've not really come across, especially not in YA. Um, and so unfortunately, I re- when we're recording this, my dad passed away last week um, and it's, I started the book maybe like two days after. And when I read the first couple of chapters, I was just like, oh, wow. Um, and it just, the, the way that you describe the emotional jet lag and the idea of waiting for that person's plane, other person's plane to leave the airport and that weird like timelessness of that um, was incredible. Um, so I guess what I'm actually asking is I'd love to know, you know, why you wanted to bring that into 
into the book because I guess it would have been quite easy for you to say Ellie comes home for a funeral. You know, you didn't need to necessarily explore that process. Um, so, yeah, why did you want to explore that? Oh, Michelle, first of all, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I I weirdly do believe that books are, are strange magic and they do find the readers that need them. So if that's true in any way, I'm so happy because writing it helped me. Because I wrote this not only during the collective grief we were all going through as a world during 2020 in the pandemic. That was when I had to, you know, went to Hobart 2019, December 2019, came back, started writing, and then we were all in suddenly a pandemic and lockdown. So there was all that grief and trauma. But also in January 2020, my grandmother passed away and she was on end of life care for about a week. And that was where kind of the vigil came into it much like Ellie does, the slow winding down that was sitting next to my grandmother's bedside and just watching her deteriorate and become a very different looking human being and not be herself anymore was devastating, even though she was very old and very elderly and it was her time. She'd been talking for a long time that it was her time. She was the kind of grandma that would say every Christmas, I might not be here next Christmas. (laughs) But Yeah, my grandmother says that too. (laughs) Like, honestly, my dad, like, would have been, like, he he hated being in the nursing home which he was in for like basically two years while we were overseas and he always just said there were places where you sit on a perch waiting to die and so he was always just gonna determine that that be the outcome because if there was one thing he was it was incredibly stubborn um so yeah he would he would have been like because he was like an old bush guy he'd been like if I was a horse or a dog, you'd just take me out of the back paddock and shoot me. Like, he just was very pragmatic about that. That is the same way my grandma spoke. She would talk about, you know, when we had to discuss do not resuscitate the stuff, back when she had all her cognitive abilities, which she did up until the very end. She was a reader all her life. Um, and she only really started deteriorating when her eyesight went in such a way that she couldn't read anymore. And she was not going to get into audio books. She was not going to get into podcasts, much as we would have loved to have tried her on that. Um, but you know, she was that blase talking about do not resuscitate. She was like, I'm done. Just leave me. It's fine. Don't come visit me. Let's just end this now. And then it actually happened. But you know, there was a good long time in there where she got to see her, her great grandchild. And that was just incredible. And we thought, oh, thank goodness she had that time with us. And then of course, because she went in January, 2020, it, it seems weird to say, but we were so thankful that she didn't go during the pandemic when we couldn't have seen her in her, in her nursing home and stuff. Yeah, would not yeah. have we couldn't come see her, and that would have just been heartbreaking for us. So that was a small reprieve. But then, in about April 2020, my uncle was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and that required a 12-hour surgery to remove. Uh, and then, even just a few weeks later, it was already back in his bloods, and he was told, "No, you're not going to survive the year." So, being in Victoria, though, he chose to use voluntary assisted dying, and it was weird because he was approved for that in like June. And he didn't die until December on his own terms. But we had all that time where, where we knew he was going to go out that way because this yeah. is the third bed of cancer. Pancreatic is what got him in the end, but he'd had throat cancer and testicular cancer as well, which is just incredible that he beat two of them and it was just the third that got him. But he was deathly afraid of hospitals, hated hospitals, did not want to end up in any sort of vegetative state um, because he deteriorated to such a place that he would have to be cared for he did not want to die in hospital he wanted to die at home and he was granted that dignity and we were all there you know but it was still a very weird you know my grandma took about a little over a week to slowly fade and wind down and that was a really a really weird vigil 
And then to have him from like July to December, knowing that's how he was going to go out was again, a very weird, strange time because there was a brief period there where he was so happy and we thought, my gosh, misdiagnosed him does he really have pancreatic cancer because he was so happy and full of life and doing so much and it was a brief period where we weren't in extreme lockdown that we could hang out with him as a family and we got to spend time with him and he got to spend so much time with his daughter my cousin and his great and his grandchild which was just beautiful um he got a small window there where his family from Queensland were able to fly down and say goodbye to him that's amazing it was kind of its own weird vigil because we, yeah. we spoke very openly about what his final day would look like. And he had such beautiful doctors from the VAD voluntary assisted dying side of things. And he would ask them, like, how have other people done this? And, of course, it's still so new in Victoria that he's one of probably about 100 people who've, who've used it so far, which is far and away <laughs> under what they thought people would tap into it for. So there haven't been many people doing this. But the doctor that he had where he lived has seen about maybe 10 people. And he would ask them, he would ask the doctor, you know, how have they chosen to go out? Did they throw a party? Was it just one day, no one else around? And my favourite was the doctor said one person did decide to throw a party. And halfway through the party without telling anyone, they took like two of their relatives, went and did it, and then kind of announced to the party that it's happened. And the party was still in full swing. And that's what he oh, wanted. Wow. You know, that was, wow. it was that's really weird. It was really weird. Yeah. I channeled all of that into this book. Yeah. And it was it was layers upon layers of like worldwide grief. Because you know, Michelle, there's stuff that we all miss. Mm. There's stuff it's we all had now two years in Australia at least of sliding doors moments of stuff we didn't get to do, chances we didn't get to take. And that's a grief. That's mm, hard. Yeah. But then compare it to actual grief where you actually lose somebody. All of that went into this book. And I'm proud of that. It was hard to do at the time. And I'm so sorry if it's hard to read as somebody who's just who's just got like an open wound. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. It wasn't though. And I think that's just um, the way that, no, it was just beautiful. It was beautiful to read because, like, I guess, like, what you were saying as well, like, it, it wasn't a surprise for us. It was – it's something that I've been preparing for for a, for a long time. Um, and I think what's been more, like, draining is just all the admin around things that you don't know about until it happens. Yeah. And even then I'm very lucky, like, to have people helping me with that and stuff like that. Um, but it's beautiful. Like you asked me why I didn't make this Ellie returning for a funeral and that was why because there is mm. professional labour that comes once somebody's gone and it is the kind of procedural stuff that has to happen afterwards that is really, really draining and having to tell people again and again can be really, really draining. But I wanted to capture that space. I feel like we were all in a kind of limbo last year and still this year and that limbo to me collectively as a country in the world felt very similar to just this stasis as you wait for somebody to leave you know and I wanted to try because you were I I personally had never encountered that myself having just experienced like a week-long limbo and then months-long limbo with the people and I just thought it was such a weird time period 
but I thought it was worth capturing for that reason that I'd never encountered it before and maybe me writing about it would help somebody else. Well, you helped me because I also had never really thought of and you know I used to be absolutely terrified Mm -hmm. to the point of panic attacks of you know losing a parent Mm -hmm. and multiple times when my dad had gone to hospital I had been hysterical and really dreaded this moment and then when it did come eventually it's not that I'm not in the same headspace now and I think that that detachment almost then I'm naturally a guilty person um so that then enacted a lot of guilt around like oh but what is what is grieving I think it's a really this is a really valuable addition to I guess the way that we talk about grief and we look at grief as well which I'd never experienced before because it is that limbo of waiting and it was about a week for me too of when my dad really, really was in the final bits where I was waking up every day thinking like, is there going to be a call from the nursing home today to say that he's passed away? And it's also really weird because as someone else who had great anxiety about any of my family members passing away and my grandma, you know, the grandma that would say for the last 10 Christmases, I might be here next year. That would just, you know, I had great fear around it and I had great fear that it would happen when I wouldn't be in the country. Like that was like one of my worst fears. And then of course yeah. I was here and I was here for the whole week and that wasn't any better. You know, I, there was no yeah. way to do this. But I think the thing that I couldn't have explained to my past self that I had to go through as well was realizing that you transfer and it becomes less about your fears and more about their comfort and what they yes. need. And that's also weirdly what, what Ellie what Ellie goes through in the book as well is she's got so much anger and frustration and nowhere to put it, but eventually, spoiler alert, she does transfer it onto I just need to forgive you. And that's yeah. about releasing her grandmother in that moment as well and in multiple ways, releasing her from the anger that she still feels towards her and releasing her from not getting access to her love anymore as well. Once she kind of releases, that's kind of symbolically, and she does kind of say once that happens, her grandmother sort of passes away very quickly after that. And I, I really felt like that was it's going to sound so spiritual and woo-woo maybe, and I'm not a religious person or anything like that, but I I needed that moment because I was trying to communicate exactly what you're saying is you do have these moments with people when they're winding down and only you know. It's like a click in your chest where you think we're good. Yeah. And you you did write about it so beautifully, Danielle, and, like, God, I just found the book so beautiful to read um, about such a – you know, and as we've been discussing, obviously it helped Michelle at the at the moment, yeah. and I'm sure it will help so many other people. And people will relate if they've had similar experiences in the past, or you know, if they will in the future. And maybe if it both. happens in the future, they will like understand it a bit more rather than trying to question it as much. Yeah. You know, it's sort of comforting to know that that is an expression of grief, not the wrong type or anything like that. Yeah, I would so I would so love that. But also just to let anyone know that it's not all a book of grief. I One reason for the romance is in there is because writing this in 2020, I had to give myself that storyline as a reprieve from the heaviest stuff in the book. So that helped me as well. That was nice to channel, something that I'd always wanted to read as a teenager. So, I, you know, something that I was going through in real life and then mashing that with aspirations I had of something that I wanted to read when I was a teenager. It was kind of like all these different halves of myself coming together. 
And then yeah. what it's produced is this very weird. I, I describe the book as this very weird time capsule of a very weird time in my life that I'm never going to forget anyway, but to have it in book form in some way and to have it be something that I created from that time and that I'm actually yeah. really proud of has been cathartic for me. That's been helpful for me, even though it in the time it felt like I was pushing myself and straining myself. And I had a wonderful publisher who kept saying, you don't have to do it this way. You can have more time. But I thought I was experiencing a moment in time and I wanted to channel that into my art. It's the Carrie Fisher thing, right? Take your book <laughs> into art. Like who doesn't yeah. it? So, yeah. Oh, gosh, Carrie Fisher, someone else and passed away. Let's not. <laughs> my God. Yeah, because <laughs> this book really is like everything. There's like the romance element and there's, you know, this grief element and the learning about the feminist history of horror movies and like there's, and like friendships and everything and like reconnecting with family members like there's so many elements in there and you really weave it all together so well, well. I think yeah. you, know, you asked why horror why not romance as a, as a why not rom-coms as the, the family's history I think that was also why is because horror is often associated with death and rebirth you know that's often yeah. a big symbol in in horror films is the final girl trope the last one standing um there's a lot of death and rebirth tropes vampirism rising from the dead zombies that's all death and rebirth I think horror does that very well horror talks about grief very well um even I I shout out Mary Shelley and Frankenstein because I love that book and I love that author and I shout her out but you know when you learn that Frankenstein was written when Mary Shelley was 18 she'd gone through a miscarriage and then by the time it was published she'd also lost a second child very young you couldn't survive in the world. And Frankenstein is her taking that grief and turning it into this monster, right? And it's kind of her theorising and I'm kind of asking herself, if you could, would you bring them back? Should you bring them back? Once you know that about the background of Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus that was the first non-religious creationist myth, you see, you can see Mary Shelley through the lines as this grieving mother, who's trying to ask herself if you could play God. You already played God once giving birth, but if you could bring them back, would you? Like it changes the reading of that book because I think that's what horror does. I think horror is just very good at taking the symbolism of birth and re-death, like zombies, vampires, fantastic, and also like even werewolves and things. All of that is nature perverted and twisted and asking yourself, would you, if you could, could you play God? That's what all of those horror tropes are trying to discuss and get to the heart of. So that's why I think I also gravitated towards horror for this family Um, because death lingers in this book and I think it lingers and is beautifully articulated by the horror genre more than any other. Wonderfully put. That is so well put. It really does make so much sense when you start thinking about it. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I had to think about these things as author. But I'm also like a huge fan of vampires and everything. And you two probably have read or watched Twilight. So you kind of watch a gothic horror. Like Twilight is gothic romanticism, right? That's kind of the the Mary Shelley. You know, actually, before when you were talking about horror movies and you mentioned Saw, I just had this really clear memory that I had forgotten that I had a sleepover when I was like 14 or 15. Um, Everyone said like, should we watch Saw or should we watch Twilight? And I was like, Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) I want to watch that. Twilight was me, yeah. Twilight one. 
Well, Jack and I watched Pet Cemetery as well, the new one, because we watched both the It movies and we were like, well, they weren't that scary. Pet Cemetery is a whole other level that we were like, oh, we were not prepared for this. It's way creepier than we thought. Wow. Okay. Oh, God. You know, one of my favorite, back when we could go to the cinemas, one of my favorite viewing experiences was seeing It Chapter 2. So excited to see it. I saw it with my, I think she was eight months pregnant cousin who went to the toilet about five times during that movie. So it just lost all of its edge. Any of the, any of that kind of distraction just ruined it. All the jump scares I was so wanting from that experience were gone because I heard Laura next to me just going, oh, I'm going to go pee again. And her falling down the stairs, eight months pregnant belly. And it just got all of the tension from it. And it became the most enjoyable funny viewing experience because it's not a great end to that franchise for me to say it's no. a ridiculous ending no. and it just made it much more hilarious to have my pregnant cousin be like just end it already oh my god he's a clown again whatever oh my god he's <laughs> wonderful oh, so my. I think I think we should we should ask you a few questions about your writing process now okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a long interview just because like we love chatting to you and Ooh, we do yeah. want to talk about more than just the book because yeah. we've got yeah that's lovely I like talking to you too well, we love asking, I guess, about like their path to publication and how they got their book deals and everything. Huh. Um, and it is interesting hearing those stories from lots of different people. And as we've mentioned, a lot of those stories that we've heard involve you. Yeah. Um, and we have also asked those stories of people who work in publishing, uh-huh. but never an agent. So obviously you were an agent first yeah. before, well, were you an agent when yeah. Begin and Begin was published? Oh, no. Yeah. Um, yes, I was. It came out in 2018 and I joined Jacinta de in 2016. So, yes, okay. I was an agent. Yeah, correct. Okay, cool. I was just about to say because you <laughs> were an agent before all your publishing deals and then I thought, no, hang on, were you? But, yes, anyway, question, you're an agent and you. how did you get published? Uh, I went about it all the wrong way. I submitted of well for first of all as an agent I had two ideal publishers in mind the only two that I wanted to approach because I, I I thought that I would fit for their list and I wanted to work with them and I sent them both a partial manuscript it wasn't yet completed which is what you should never ever 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 do because as they did they turned around and said can we read the whole thing and I was like give me three weeks and I'll get it to you because it was so sloppy still I sent them the good parts right and I had to go and spend three weeks three weeks breaking my back in an intensive editorial that I should have already done before I sent it to them, first of all. But I was so – I did it to push myself. I, I'd been working on The Year the Maps Changed, my first book that got acquired for five years, and I just thought I need a final push to really get myself over the edge. So both these publishers saying, hey, can we read the whole thing? This is really interesting to us, was just what I needed. Um, with The Year the Maps Changed, which is my middle-grade book that came out last year, which was a contemporary historic fiction um, it has a big thread about refugees and asylum seekers. And one of the publishers said, yep, yeah, take all that out and just have it be the family drama. Don't have it be the refugees and asylum seeker discussion. And the other publisher said, no, I really like how that works in Harmony. Keep keep both threads. So I went with that one, with that publisher. who I just thought got me. And at the time I also sort of pitched this idea of, I think I quoted the Linda Blair quote, the exorcist has been a very interesting cross there. And I kind of said with them, I kind of said to them, if you can just let me play around with this YA idea I have about a child star growing up, with the legacy of their filmic family and this horror film, I'd like to try and attempt that. So they bought two books from me, but when they bought The Year the Map Changed, nothing of the monster of her age was written yet. So um, The Year the Map Changed came out in April last year, and from then on I had to really nose to the grindstone the monster of her age and get it written and get in a Hobart trip as well. Um, 
so yeah, that was how it happened was a two book deal and just a very loose pitch to my publisher of what I could do in, in YA space and them saying, cool, go off and do that. And then doing that. <laughs> much. Wow. So you wrote The Monster of Her Age in what, like two years-ish, but the year the maps changed in five, yeah. did you say? Yeah, I wrote wow. The Monster of Her Age probably in about eight months for the first draft. And then it was all up probably 12 months of editorial altogether and everything. Um, wow. Yeah. I had to do it in a very different time span. And then I'm kind of hoping to challenge myself and I would really like to spend, I'd like to kind of clear my calendar in, in like December and try and get the first draft of my new idea down in like one month for at least the first draft and then kind of spend the first few months of 2022 working on polishing it because that's not yet bought anywhere. My, my publisher, Hachette, is very kind and has said, what are you working on next? We're interested, whatever you've got. So I don't. But it's have not any, like official. No, it's not <laughs> official. I don't have any deadlines looming over me, which is how I think I work best without deadlines like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm going to try and give myself a little bit of space in the Christmas break to get this draft down. But yeah, it was a little bit of, and I also will say, even though I was the one that was the point person to the two publishers I was interested in, once I actually had the offer, I gave it all to Jacinta and said, you do the contract and stuff because I could not negotiate for myself. No poker face when it came to my own work. So I, I left that in more capable hands. Yeah. yeah. So you're not your own agent? No, not at all. I couldn't <laughs> do it. I would have sold it for like three beans, you know. <laughs> Anything, take it, it's yours. And like, let me. <laughs> Please. <laughs> no, be an author, please. Uh, so no, I did not advocate for myself. I couldn't have, I couldn't have done a good job as an agent for myself. No way. <laughs> so um, that sort of leads us into what would be, you said you did everything the wrong way, things that you wouldn't. So what would be your top tips uh, for any writers who are listening, who want to get their work published? Uh, polish the first manuscript, the first draft, polish it. So it's not your first draft, polish it. So it's like draft two or three and you've had readers and everything come into it. Nobody read my work before I sent it off. I had scrilled it away for five years, constantly being asked, when's it coming? What's, what are you doing with it? And I, it, it just got built up so much in my mind that I didn't share it with anyone. Hence why I had to do that final push and send it to publishers to make them kind of push me. Um, so polish, 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 and make sure that you're sending it to the people who it will fit in their list. It's what they're looking for. So my publisher, Kate Stevens, has a quite eclectic list with Hachette. She does kind of everything, picture books, middle grade, uh, young adult, um, adult fiction, etc. And I liked that. I liked that she was a little bit quirky, um, was across the board, that I could potentially come to her one day and say, hey, I have an adult mystery novel I want to write. And she wouldn't kind of go, egads, I only do children's stuff. Like I love her so much as my publisher and my first point person that I liked the idea of growing with her if I wanted to expand beyond, and I ended up doing that. I expanded beyond just middle grade to YA and I'll go back to middle grade again. And you never know, I may have ambitions of writing adult fiction one day. Who knows? And I liked that I could do that with her as a publisher. Um, so research, research, research. If it's a literary agent you're after, research who they represent. You kind of don't want to pitch yourself if they already have an author who's doing exactly what you're doing on their list, because why would they let their author have their sales eaten into by a new client, etc.? But look in the general sphere of, you know, they really love middle grade. Um, they really love young adult literature. They're really great at mysteries, um, etc. So just research and polish. My two big tips. Excellent. Yeah, love that. Very, very helpful. Um, as we said at the start as well, we've read and loved and chatted to many of the amazing authors that you represent over our four years of doing this show. 
you really do have such a talent for like identifying those emerging voices for championing those voices so we would love to know and this will put you on the spot a little bit I think um what upcoming books should we be looking out for uh so Kay Kerr's new one social cue is coming Already on our list, Danielle. We like. already requested it. We're all over it. <laughs> just arrived today and I got to read the acknowledgement that Kay wrote for me. That made me have a little lump in my throat. It's so beautiful. Um, so that's coming. The thing that's still in the works that isn't yet like pitched or anything, hasn't sold anywhere, is my author, Briar Rolf, is creating a graphic novel. They are a graphic novel author and illustrator and they're writing a mm-hmm. and they're a trans creator and they're writing a trans rom-com YA graphic novel that is just so amazing good. and I can't wait to pitch it and it's going to sell like hotcakes uh, and in the meantime you can follow Briar on Instagram and they've been putting up a few little page treats, little hints and previews so that's the thing that I'm oh really going to be working on, graphic novels. I love graphic novels. I've been reading them for so long and I can't wait to see and maybe be a little small part of seeing them grow in the Australian industry, particularly in the YA space. So, yeah, watch that space. Briar Rolf. Oh, that sounds excellent. And to end on a very, very tricky question, if you had to choose maybe like a top three Love Oz YA releases from this year, maybe not your own authors yeah. you can't play favorites there but what have you been loving this year oh gosh was gary lonsborough's the boy from the mish a 2021 or 2020 title i think it was I like it was Fair Board Man. Yeah. yeah i think that yeah. was this year uh, that was excellent absolutely loved that thought it was spectacular i think it actually is this year and then it's coming out with scholastic in america next year uh under david levithan's um editorial stewardship which is just incredible and should tell you something oh that's cool where Gary Lonsborough is heading, which is just to the stratosphere. I also really loved Henry Hamlet's Heart by Rhiannon Wilde. Oh, yes, we oh, adore that. Yes, um, yeah. Loved that. And also it's probably more middle grade, but I also think it could be like, oh, no, it could be like kind of on the edge, but Pip Harry's Are You There, Buddha? The verse novel, absolutely loved it. And just in case Gary Lonsborough's Boy from the Mish was a 2020 title, not 2021, I'll also say like Nova Wheatman's Edge of 13 which I do think was a 2021 title. But if it's not, again, then I'm sorry. I don't know what separates 2020 and 2021 because they are... It's all a big blur. It's so hard. It's It's all such a blur. But also when you're, you know, more involved in publishing and everything, you just forget what month, like, you're actually up to. (laughs) 100%. So those are my top. And I'm sorry if I went top four instead of top three but I genuinely do not remember what came out between this year and last year because I know it's still May 2020, like somewhere in, in the timeline, in the multiverse, I'm just repeating that month again and again. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We're just, we're still there. Mm-hmm. Over I've, I've moved to like May 2021 because that's when we came back to Australia and it feels like, I mean, I keep, I run into people at the shops and I'm like, oh yeah, we only just got back three months ago. Like, yeah. uh. it feels like you're on the ultimate iPod shuffle of like the worst tracks of your life. <laughs> I I said to Caitlin on the phone the other day, oh my God, it's September already and all I've done this year is be traumatised. Yeah, yeah, that's a real mood. That's a real mood. <laughs> yeah, I first out laughing when she said that, yeah. but like, oh my God. And like. If I don't laugh, I'll cry. <laughs> just that's pretty much what we're all at. On so. 2023 being better. I'm like really, I'm really going low, low bar for next year because I made the mistake of thinking next year's gonna be better but no I know. 
We all got so excited and I think we overdid it. Yeah. Low bar for 2022. I'm just going to keep being excited about books to read because that is pretty much the one thing that pandemic cannot stop. It's constant. Like TV production and movie production and stuff, entertainment areas, books, we can do virtually. We are recording this on the 2nd of September and September is like a boom month for new books coming out like the new sally rooney is coming tobias madden just had his book release k kerr like i said social cue uh there are a lot of books coming all oh, the new the new leon leanne moriarty is coming cs Picard- the new the next um thursday murder club book which uh regular listeners will know i am uh, i'm yeah, so obsessed, obsessed with, with but i read it twice <laughs> in four months and i never reread books so like, i've ordered like pre-ordered a nice hardback copy from my favorite indie bookshop in the uk nice. They're paying an extraordinary amount of shipping on it, but I don't care. <laughs> there's like Charlotte Wood coming. There's a new Jennifer Down coming. Uh, Michelle DeCrista is coming. There's just so many books coming in September, especially like September 28. So you can also kind of look forward to October thinking, oh, all those books will definitely be in stores by then. This is the most exciting time for like all the big fiction releases in the UK and stuff as well. There's mm-hmm. so much coming out. It's unbelievable um so yeah we always have books to look forward to books are always there for us books never let us down books will always always save the day (laughs) agreed books are magic that's all you need books are magic just go off buy from independent bookshops wherever they are don't buy anything from amazon jeff bezos does not need more money he does not need our money to become the most rich person in the entire history of humanity please yeah yeah, we're no. not a fan of Jeff Bezos. We just need to support Aussie authors and Aussie writers and Aussie bookshops. Yeah. And actually, it's a it's a good time to point out, like, obviously, yep, books are expensive. They are, Not everyone can afford to shop at an independent bookstore, even though we love them, which is why it's wonderful that libraries in Australia what? also do, in some small way, support authors. So if you can't afford to buy a book from an independent bookstore, Go to your local library. Ask them to – most libraries would be happy to order in a book for you as well. That is 100% true because there is something called public lending rights, PLR, which basically means every time a book gets borrowed in the library, a portion of that um, gets given back to authors in wholesale value, dollar bucks at the end of thy financial year you get a percentage of how much your book has been circulating in libraries. So it is good for authors if you borrow books from libraries or if libraries do not have a copy of the book that you're looking for, ask them to order it in. Because we do still get money and we do get paid that way. Certainly more than if you buy our books from Amazon, which pays all the yes. So don't do that. We would much prefer that you yeah. invest in public libraries, which is also investing in public knowledge. So do that. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And if you it's- ask a library to order a book in for you and then you borrow it and then you return it, it's on the shelf in the library for other people yeah. to find. Yes. No matter where you are, public libraries are for the public. You're the public. You're a part owner of that library. Invest in it shape it the way that you would like it to be and make it more inclusive to what you're looking for. Yay. Okay. Yay. We've solved all the world's problems now. Yeah. We, we have. <laughs> We've gone off on a hundred million teams, solved all the world's problems. Um, but we've had such a blast talking to you, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and congratulations. Four years of this, you two. That is absolutely incredible. An honour to come back and be a repeat guest now and get to tell you both face-to-face, face-to-face. Uh, quotation marks uh i'm proud of you and congratulations on what you're doing and what you've done i think that's absolutely wonderful and incredible and yeah thank you to be back here and to tell you that and for you all to have been so kind to me so thank you 
Oh, well, I can't wait to one day actually have a coffee with you in person in Melbourne and, you know, go to a bookshop. Um. <laughs> can dream. We can totally do that one day. Put me on yeah. schedule. Let's do it. Or we just meet up in Hobart. <gasps> I was, yeah, that's even better, actually. Yeah. What a <laughs> yeah. good idea. We, we can do our own little bus yeah. tour of Hobart. Um, <laughs> yeah, we might like a bus tour. We would meet up at the State Cinema in Hobart and we just have a day in Hobart or like a weekend. <gasps> yeah. And- this, the, uh, one day it will happen. Will. <laughs> one day. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, before you go, just let our listeners know where they can find and follow you online if they're not already. Uh, I have a website, daniellebings.com, where you can find out all of my I have a I have a TikTok channel now. Please go and follow me on there. I'm not so good at it, but please do. Uh, I'm also on Instagram as dbinks, and then I'm on Twitter as Danielle underscore binks. But just go to daniellebinks.com. You'll see all my links there and my sad little TikTok link and my sad little TikTok videos as I try and figure out BookTok. So, yeah. I'm going to follow you on TikTok right now. Is Alpha Reader still live? Like, is that still a thing people can go visit? It's still a thing. You can see how well my mental health is going by how much I'm reading and how much I'm not reading by what I add to Alpha Reader. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, thank you again and hope the rest of lockdown looks may you always have good books i mean thank you both and stay safe get vaccinated and i'll see you on the other side of this thing yeah yeah bye thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me caitlin at just a bookish babe if you liked this episode please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review 